Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. He's Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Uh, all crazy today. Only crazy martinis across the board. So let's just dive right in and start north of the border. So, Jim, so many times we have these betters than us telling us what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. And then when they get caught doing it, all of a sudden the rules kind of change. We talked a lot about Ralph Northam earlier this year and his blackface scandal from his medical school yearbook. He's still in office. And and now most people in Virginia, or at least a majority, I think, don't want him to leave anymore. And now we've got Justin Trudeau, social justice warrior of the great white north. And now he's also running again for prime minister. And he's got a blackface scandal of his own. He uh, has now admitted to two instances, and there's actually a third. Uh, Here is Justin Trudeau on his plane explaining why he's really, really, really sorry for these things that happened once in high school and once while he was teaching back in 2001. I take responsibility for my uh, decision to do that. I shouldn't have done it. I should have known better. Uh, It was something that uh, I didn't think was racist at the time, but now I recognize um, it was something racist to do, and I am deeply sorry. In 2001, uh, when I was a teacher out in Vancouver, I attended an end-of-year gala where the theme was Arabian Nights. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume and put makeup on. I shouldn't have done that. I should have known better, but I didn't. And I'm really sorry. Do you you think you should resign? Would you have called for men to step down? I think uh, there are people who've made mistakes in... Uh, in this life, and you make decisions based on what they actually uh, do, what they did, uh, and on a case-by-case basis. Case-by-case basis, Jim. In case folks missed the question, it was uh, if somebody else did this uh, from another political rival or something, would you want them to resign? And it's a case-by-case basis, which you're seeing in kind of the reaction because you're not seeing a lot of libs saying it's time for Justin Trudeau to go. He is sorry there, Greg. (laughs) He was a real hoser there, eh? So, yeah, when he says case-by-case basis, look— is the person a liberal or a progressive or in the United States terms, a Democrat? Well, in that case, it's forgivable. Is this person a political opponent of the left? Well, in that case, it's unforgivable. That person must be canceled. That person must be driven from their jobs, driven from office. They must be made, you know, forced to pay the ultimate, you know, the highest consequences possible. I think what's kind of just delicious about this one is that, first of all, I mean, Justin Trudeau's whole image is built on the idea of being this supremely tolerant, the ideal, the the McDreamy hunk of progressivism who stands for multiculturalism and tolerance and understanding. And oh my goodness, he totally he's the last person in the world who would ever put on blackface and brown face multiple times. Then at least here in Virginia, look, you know, you and I have fumed about uh, our governor a bunch of times, but you know, there's always that look, I was young, I was stupid, I didn't realize the con Look at one of these, Trudeau was a teacher. <laughs> this was back in the ancient days of 2001. By the way, Greg, like, you know, his, his version of Aladdin must, uh, he needs to color correct his TV or something because uh, that, was, that was Al Jolson right there. Of, you know, Ralph Northam saying, that's a, little, that's a little dark there, buddy. You probably want to lighten up a little bit. 
this is, you know, here's the thing. Is this why Trudeau should not be reelected? Actually, I think the, the corruption scandal, which he basically told, I guess, kind of the equivalent of his attorney general type figure, a government investigator, say, I lay off that company. Uh, they've been big donors to me. Uh, and that, you know, that's just straight up corruption. I think this does reflect badly on him. I, I think that he probably, I'm perfectly fine with a standard, but his whole thing about case by case basis, you end up being a thing where like, well, look, these scandals matter when somebody I don't like does them, but they don't matter when somebody I do like does them. We need a better, uh, more uniform standard than that. If he wants to say, you know what, I did this, it was a party, I was trying to have a good time, I didn't realize that I could come across as offensive or, or trying to mock someone or something like that. I, you know, I didn't realize how wrong, okay, fine, but then let's extend that same sense of forgiveness to everybody else. We don't all need to be driven from our jobs for every single misjudgment we ever make. We're all human beings, we're all gonna make mistakes. Or um, we can say, you know what, these things have to have consequences, but we can't do this in a, well, it matters when it's one side, not the other. Um, and it's, you know, it's been really kind of fascinating to watch how many people have kind of averted their eyes or said, tisk tisk. now it's time to move on. And uh, the fact that it's Mr. Dreamy, McTolerant understanding doing this, it just makes me, you know, I have been giggling since this broke last night, Greg. And you've got some folks on the left saying, hey, you conservatives that are so upset about cancel culture. Now would be a great time to prove that you're really not for that by refusing to pile on to these Justin Trudeau allegations. Like, no, nah, I'm not really sure this is the right time to start that. But uh, the other thing I noticed is that people, of course, are making the comparison to Ralph Northam. And whatever else you want to say about Ralph Northam, his path took a little bit of a different turn here because Justin Trudeau would have to come back today and say, no, actually, it wasn't me in any yeah. three of these instances. And he would be busy undermining the political future of everyone who could possibly replace him. So uh, he's not quite up to the Northam level yet. Yeah. Uh, by the way, didn't Megyn Kelly get canned over this? She got canned about talking about it. Right. You know, the <laughs> idea that, you know, at one point, you know, just telling a story. Nobody's ever seen any photos of Megyn Kelly. But she said, oh, you darken your skin to look like Diana Ross. You know, look, obviously there's a bit of a, you know, uh, weighty historical context of white people putting on makeup to look. Uh, like black people, but we're thinking, you know, Amos and Andy, we're thinking Al Jolson, we're thinking of things that were much more, you know, minstrel shows, things were much more explicitly, hey, look at how silly these people are, right? If Ralph Northam had said, yes, I dressed up like Michael Jackson, I love Michael Jackson, I'm a diehard Michael Jackson fan, so is Weird Al Yankovic, and in all the videos, Weird Al Yankovic didn't dress up in, in blackface, we all knew who Weird Al Yankovic was supposed to be parodying, or, or you know, that in those videos. But fine, whatever. This shouldn't be, you know, something that, you know, something you can't wash off maybe would be a, a bad metaphor there. We could have a forgiving attitude, but we can't have this, you know, oh, it only counts when it's somebody we don't like uh, type thing, which I think is pretty clearly going to happen here. Again, we'll see what happens. It looked like Trudeau was already in trouble heading into this election. I know the Canadians are a very apologetic people, but I'm not sure that three times and as recently as 2001, just saying you're sorry is going to uh, is going to get him out of this one. <laughs> How often do you think Robert Downey Jr. is uh, communicating with whatever movie studio put out Tropic Thunder, begging them to take it out of circulation at this point? <laughs> well, that's the one. It's a hilarious, you know, you know, it's a hilarious movie. Very off color. Just to anybody who's like, oh, Jim and Greg seem like nice guys. Yeah, it's really. You know. But again, for those who don't know the context, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is basically playing Russell Crowe. He never comes out and says it, but he's playing this Australian actor who is extremely into method acting and who you know, dives into the part and never breaks character, et cetera, et cetera. They're making a Vietnam War movie and he decides he's cast as an African-American character. So he's wearing blackface and he changes his voice. 
And the irony is, is that he's, you know, he's reasonably uh, uh, plausible and funny. He doesn't look like Robert Downey Jr. And there's all kinds of, it's what's the fascinating thing is that, you know, someone would say something racist and he'll get offended by it. And the actual African-American, you know, he'd say, what do you mean, you people? And of course, the actual African-American next to him says, um, what do you mean, you people? You know, the joke there is the narcissism and ridiculousness of actors and this, you know, belief that they can dive in and get into the skin of another person. And again, you know, not only did Robert Downey Jr. not get any, you know, uh, blowback or, or criticism for that role, I believe he got nominated for an Oscar. And I think at the Oscar ceremony, I want to say it was Cuba Gooding Jr. who was like, man, it's always tough for African-American males to find good roles. And now Robert Downey Jr. is taking the good ones. <laughs> um, and everyone laughed and everyone kind of understood. You know, there's no racism or malevolence, you know, like it was like you and I with the Irish and Greek jokes yesterday. But okay. yes. So, you know, again, not everyone, you know, again, is this Trudeau a hateful person? No, but Greg, I would let everyone know. You know, there are clan members who've never put on blackface that many times. Yes, it's the double standard that's the craziest and most infuriating part here. I think we've uh, established that. So uh, in the meantime, uh, let's talk about Quip toothbrushes. There's nothing controversial about those because they're part of a normal routine, especially when you get back to school and Get on with uh, getting back to the full life of a family after summer vacation. The easiest way to get back into a routine, start it up right away before school starts, especially if you're headed back to school. And that way, once school picks back up, which it has in virtually every part of the country now, I think, uh, you're already in your routine. So you can simplify your morning and evenings now with a simpler electric toothbrush from Quip. Timed sonic vibrations cover the basics from every part of your mouth, and it takes just two minutes twice a day. The mirror mount puts brushing front and center in your bathroom as well, which is really nice because your vanity can really get cluttered up a lot of times with all the different stuff that you and your wife uh, use. And so this sticks right to your mirror, and so it doesn't take up space on the counter. It's also a good way to remember to bookend the day using your new brush. And the lightweight, compact design means you can bring it with you on all of those trips, whether it's uh, your last bit of the uh, late summer here or one of those fall getaways coming up soon. So enjoy sleeping in and then when it's time for the routine, get back up and get brushing those teeth with Quip. Quip has sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. There's a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, when to go from top to bottom, and to help you clean your whole mouth evenly. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5, a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. Finally, Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by more than 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. Quip is awesome. Jim can tell you the toothpaste is great. There's now a kid's Quip, and uh, his kids love the flavor of the toothpaste. My wife loves uh, the Quip brush that she has. Just got the new refill pack of brushes. It could not be easier. They do all the work for you, even while you're brushing. What's not to love? We love Quip, and we take it with us wherever we go. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you can get that first refill pack of brushes for free. That's right. Your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash martini. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini. Another crazy martini here, Jim. And this is the latest incident that will bring down the Trump administration. Or so a lot of people on the left are saying. And 
if this actually materializes, it could be a big problem for the president. But what the Washington Post and uh, some other places are reporting today is that a whistleblower inside the the directors of National Intelligence Office went to the uh, inspector general because of an intelligence issue. Uh, And the issue was an interaction that the president had with a foreign leader, which included a promise that was regarded as so troubling that it prompted an official in the U.S. intelligence community to file a formal whistleblower complaint. But we don't know who he was talking to, and we don't know what the promise was. And one of the things that makes this controversial is that the uh, DNI is not actually sharing this with Congress yet, and so Congress thinks there's a big obstruction going on here with this. So a lot that we don't know. It could be serious, or it could be the latest hyperventilation from the media. What do you think? Yeah, and and there's a really big range on this. Um, It's very easy to picture... President Trump, you know, in, in some of what they're describing sounds like routine presidential head of state to head of state negotiations. You know, if you do X, I could do Y kind of, you know, you know, the, the kind of uh, floating trial balloons or putting something out or Greg, I'm sure we all remember uh, President Obama telling Medvedev, you know, I'll, uh, I'll have some more flexibility after my next election. Yes. I'll transmit this to Vladimir. Um, that, you know, that, that reassuring exchange caught on a hot mic. Uh, or it could be something really genuinely bad in which, you know, President Trump says, OK, if you do X, I will do Y. And that whoever I assume this is somebody in the national security community, somebody in the intelligence community who gets the uh, you know, presumably we've wiretapped this foreign leader's phone or something. We're getting the transcript. We're reading this and something in there looks like an oh, my goodness, this is a quid pro quo that is not in the national interest, that is, an- that is against American national security. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, scenarios you can imagine here, particularly from a president who said, hey, let's invite the Taliban to Camp David right before 9-11. It's really curious. So the question now is, is this a big deal? Is this a small deal? Is this routine? And without any further context, it's very hard to get a sense of whether this is, you know, more hyperventilating or whether, no, the president really did step over a line. Um, There were reports that Rudy Giuliani was trying to get the Ukrainians to look into the business dealings of... um, uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. You know, you you can imagine something very bad coming up there in a, in a circumstance like that, or maybe it's nothing. Now, somebody else made a very interesting observation here that uh, you look at how the House Intelligence Committee has handled this kind of stuff, uh, both when you know, Nunes was running and, and you know Adam Schiff was uh, clipping out every couple of days and all over the TV screens. To when you know Schiff took over, you know the House Intelligence Committee, everything with Trump was a huge thing. There's an interesting contrast. Uh, The relationship between Senator Burr and Senator Mark Warner over in the Senate Intelligence Committee was less acrimonious. Um, Usually was not flying off the handle. There was a little bit more of a spirit of bipartisan cooperation there. And you could probably make the argument that if, you know, when when Warner and Burr flip out, it's a big deal. If they don't, then this is the same old usual suspects saying the same old usual things. So, Keep an eye on them. Uh, as far as I know, they've issued kind of a very pro forma statement that this is something we'll be looking into. But I have not seen them running around with their hair turned on fire. If there was, uh, if they, they do, there's a signal this is a very big deal, as opposed to just more of the, you know, somebody, somebody heard something Trump said and they decided this is going to be the next big scandal. There's also always the next election. And the next election comes uh, next year, obviously. In addition to the presidential race, you got House and Senate. And the Republicans are really trying hard to win back the House of Representatives, which they lost last year. And, Jim, they've got this great new plan to do it. Uh, It's totally new. You've never heard this before. According to Bloomberg, House Republicans plan to run on tried and true issues in 2020, repealing Obamacare and reducing the national debt. 
repealing Obamacare, reducing the national debt. It's the exact same thing they ran on in 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016. Hey, and then they got everything they wanted in 2016, Republican House, Senate, and President. Uh, Deficits got bigger, and trying to repeal Obamacare turned into a total train wreck. So what do you think of this strategy? So, Greg, is the the slogan, and this time we mean it? (laughs) Or... Trust us, Charlie Brown. We won't pull the football <laughs> away this time. Or you know, deeply frustrating uh, bit of news here because one, I, first of all, you know, Trump has uh, returned us to the era of trillion-dollar deficits. Some of that you could say is from the tax cuts, but a really a lot of it is mostly just runaway spending. I mean, we 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 have not reduced spending, and yeah, you can throw a lot of rocks at the Democrats over this. But as you know, as noted, this you know, it's not like we saw a giant drop in spending when it was all Republican control of government during the first two years of the Trump administration. The evidence is that congressional Republicans talk a much better game on cutting spending than, than actually doing it. As soon as it starts to hurt, as soon as it starts to be politically risky, all of a sudden they lose their nerve and, and go along with bigger spending bills. So I'm not seeing that as, uh, as, as a big, also the other question is, you know, look, Trump was, was not serious about deficit reduction or debt, you know, addressing the debt the presidential campaign and he beat all the other Republicans and uh, he's, you know, there's not any evidence that Republicans have suddenly decided to abandon him. And Michael, you know, uh, uh, Sanford's trying to make his presidential bid about this. I don't think, you know, see him catching on uh, like wildfire. Uh, I'm not sure Republicans even care about this issue anymore. They, this is lip service and they're comfortable with it never being more than lip service. Man, that's very repealing Obamacare. Again, like you guys had the house for two years. I, I think unless there's a completely different group of House Republicans in there, maybe you get a whole bunch of folks who are, are rip snorting, ready to go and absolutely maybe. But, you know, look, it's 2019. The country's kind of gotten used to Obamacare. I don't think this is the great Republican rallying cry that these guys do. And um, the idea that they actually said this and actually said this to reporters and, and nobody you know, this really kind of suggests great. This is a House Republican party. It's kind of on autopilot. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> Like, is anybody paying attention to this? There's a giant mountain approaching. Yeah, they had a massively watered down version of the repeal, if you even want to call it that, when they had about 240 members in the House. Now they've got about 200. So you'd really have to have a massive wave to get back to uh, where you would want to be. So, yeah, I don't see that this uh, running the ball right up the middle again is uh, going to work for them. But what is what would be a better strategy right now? Is it just Democrats are completely consumed by impeachment and nutso ideas like the Green New Deal? Or is there a better way to put forth your own ideas? One of the hard lessons of politics for the last, you could say, decade, two decades, you know, maybe going back further, it's very hard for people in the party to develop a message independent of the president. The president is going to define the face of the party. And if his brand of republicanism or you know doesn't match well with what you need to win your district, can you or your state can you win sure are you going to win it's tougher um you know pat toomey managed to carry pennsylvania when uh trump was winning pennsylvania and if you look at the map they actually won different counties and did different different levels of support in different areas uh rubio won in florida as trump was winning so on paper i guess you can do this but it's tough and i think it's also worth noting you know Rubio and uh, Toomey had been incumbents and Rubio had run for president. They kind of established their brand, who they were, what they stand for, independent of President Trump. If you're the, you know, um, Joe Schmo House Republican candidate who isn't well known in your district, I think you're probably going to have a tougher time. 
you know, win or lose, I think the Republican message is broadly tied to the president and whatever is on his mind on any given day. And so, you know, what's Trump going to be running on? Uh, build the wall. You need, you need me in there to finish building the wall. Immigration, uh, make America great again. Tax cuts, weren't they terrific? Ideally, this president would be going into second term with a much more positive, affirmative agenda. Of, you like me because I did X, but you need me there because I'm going to do Y. And I think, you know, it's not like the president has not, you know, flailed around trying to do a whole bunch of stuff. Every, you know, we got infrastructure week every couple of you know, months, it seems. Um, all these other big ideas he's tried over the last two and a half years, and it hasn't gotten out there, partially out of lack of cooperation from congressional Democrats, partially out of lack of uh, unity among congressional Republicans, and part of the fact that the president seemed to have ADD and every couple of days, you know, you start infrastructure week, but then he's really <laughs> mad at, you know... Uh, something AOC said or something like that, or he sees something on cable news and he starts tweeting about that. And, and all of a sudden that's what we're talking about for the course of the week. So it's going to be very tough for Republicans to form an independent image and platform and agenda and ideas separate from president Trump. Having said that, I do think that they Trump leaves the scene because there is no designated successor uh, because there are great differences in style. And I think focus between he and Mike Pence that I think you will see more traditional style Republicans catch fire and become a bigger deal uh, as soon as Trump departs the stage. But as long as he's on that stage, the image of the Republican Party is going to be Donald Trump. I was just thinking about the legislative accomplishments. Obviously, it's hard when the Democrats control the House. You're pretty much powerless to do anything. But the big accomplishment legislatively, other than the tax cuts in the Trump administration so far, judicial confirmations, which the House has absolutely nothing to do with. So you can't really talk about that. Yeah, criminal justice reform. True. Uh, you know, there's, there's stuff that's happened, right to try. You know, it's not, there's nothing there. When the country elected Democrats to the House in 2018, I think they, you know, either they knew or they should have known they were going to get a do nothing Congress for two years, that there was just not going to be a lot of room for cooperation between these two sides. There were too many Democrats, as much as they said, oh, you know, we're running to, to end partisanship. No, no, no. Like, you know, <laughs> these, you know, these two guys, these two sides do not have a lot of common ground. They do not see a lot of areas in which they're willing to say, oh, you know, we like in on theory, uh, they both want infrastructure. Um, Democrats want to spend oodles and oodles of money. Republic, you know, House Republicans, Senate Republicans aren't quite as big a, an idea uh, on, on that idea, too afraid of it going into pork projects and stuff like that. Strangely enough, the probably the strongest argument for Trump going into 2020 is going to be, look, even if you don't like me, this status quo is actually pretty good for you, pointing to the economy, uh, pointing to the fact we haven't had any major terrorist attacks so far, pointing to the fact that uh, we're actually still fighting in places like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and places like that. But you know, the idea is we haven't expanded. We're not, you know, you're not seeing flag-draped coffins come back anymore. So most Americans' minds, we're not at war anymore. You could say, do you like that or do you want the Bernie Sanders Bolshevik revolution? By the way, for anyone who's like, Bolshevik uh, <laughs> For anyone who thought I said a different word, but I can understand why people might think I would use that other word uh, to describe the Sanders agenda. You know, you got a good thing going, America. Do you really want to mess it up by going with one of these nutty Democrats? And that's probably the strongest message for him. And it's a message it's easy to see him winning on uh, if the Democrats continue to sound like they want to turn everything in society upside down. One of these days we need to do a, a little bit of a rant on Bernie's statistics that he throws out there in the debates because they're absolutely ludicrous some of the times. But uh, there was something I saw on Twitter the other day where I can't remember who it was, but it was a female, uh, I think center right. And basically her, her comment was, 
Um, I would never actually want to spend any time with Trump or be his friend, but I think I'm going to vote for him. And Trump tweeted back and said, I'm okay with that. <laughs> that but anyway, kudos for him for, for acknowledging that and for being for being comfortable with that. We know that this is the reports of this president being kind of prickly and, you know, you know, look, that's what you need. You don't need to be beloved by everybody. You just need enough votes in enough places to get to 270 electoral votes. That's probably what the president can do when you have this kind of personality and this kind of inherently combative approach to American politics. You know, this is never a guy who's going to have approval rating up in the 55, 60, 70 percent across the whole country. Jim, another crazy day. We'll see how much craziness we have tomorrow. See you then. Yeah, it's it's looking like another all crazy day tomorrow. (laughs) Jim Garrity, National Review. His book is Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We'll see you tomorrow on the Three Martini Lunch. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our friends over at Quip, getquip.com slash martini.